Welcome to the Can Do Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Buxhoveden. I live with MS and I'm a clinician and MS researcher. I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Lydia Emily, who's an artist living with progressive MS. Welcome, Lydia. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about how you were diagnosed and how long you've been living with MS? Oh man, I think I was diagnosed with MS in 2010, maybe? Man, that's a tough question. I'm sorry. I have that's a manager okay. someplace. There's a manager somewhere. We can ask someone. We can we can fact check it. But it was probably like 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, I'm guessing. That feels right. Like I feel like we had a 10 year anniversary maybe over COVID. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stick with that. Yeah. I just like celebrated my 10 year anniversary with it. Oh, cheers. Cheers to that. That's awesome. So, so I was um do you want to hear the story or no? I mean, I, I don't have to tell to. a story. You do? Are you sure? Yeah. I can yeah. talk. I can just I talk love forever. It. All right. <laughs> I um, have been known to do illegal art here and there. I've done mostly legal art, uh, commissioned, hired murals, walls. But there was there there have been times where I get a little nutty and go out with my friends and get up on crazy places. And um, so we were in Oakland. And Oakland, California, which is like the Wild West. Oakland is like crazy town. Everybody who lives there is a champion because that place is banana pants. And so we went out in the night. And when you go up on a billboard, um, for anybody who'd like to try this, when you go up on a billboard or an overpass or a freeway uh, to do street art, um, they use a a latch to pull down the ladder. And if you jump, if you get just right and you jump up, you can release the ladder. So I was doing that and I was gonna go up and do street art with some friends of mine. Like, yeah, I think it's probably 15 years ago now. Yeah, 15 years ago. And um, the latch didn't release. So I jumped up to grab something thinking it was gonna release and it didn't. And as you know, that can pull your arms out or whatever. So I, I felt like a little twinge, but I didn't think much of it. A couple weeks later, and it was, it was a good piece of art, by the way. That was a lot of fun that night. A couple weeks later, I started having pain in one of my shoulders. I thought it was associated with an injury, but it was not. It was, it was MS. I just didn't know it yet. So I was like, oh, I got an injury being, you know, a rebel or whatever. And look at me. And um, I did, you know, I went to see the chiropractor. I went to see my doctor. I went to go do all these things. I kept telling people it was an injury. I may have hindered my own progress by trying to tell doctors what I thought it was because I'm a doctor, obviously. And um, so it took a lot longer, but then one morning I woke up and half my tongue was numb, just half. And I thought, I'm like, I think I was like 39. I was like, I don't really fit the stroke profile, but I'll go to the emergency room. And I went to the emergency room and then they kept me and they saw infractions on my uh, scans. And, you know, that's when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed in the ER, basically. And um, I didn't really know what MS was. I remember my mom came and she was sitting next to me and the doctor, I actually feel really bad for ER doctors. The ER doctor had to tell me I had MS. I felt so bad for him. I was like, you look so uncomfortable. Like you're used to sewing people's hands back on because of fireworks. You're not used to, you know. And um, I remember when I was saying to him, oh, I'm so sorry, I feel so bad for you. I have to do this. My mom rubbed my back 
which we're not, my mom's not super emotional or close. So she rubbed my back and then I knew, I was like, oh, this is a bad thing. I should be more worried about me. What is it? And then I had to research. This was before Twitter and you know all these things. There was the internet, but it wasn't as keen or insane as it is today. So, you know, we had to um, go to different doctors and get different advice and try different medicines. It was those first couple of years were they were um, uncharted territory and and rough um, yeah. trying to get it right. Very similar to me. I was athletic and 25. So when I, my first symptom was my legs went numb. So naturally I was like, oh, it's a sports injury. I'll just ignore it. It's fine. Obviously I'm fine. And maybe I have a medical background. So I always say I'm good at talking myself out of the fact that things could possibly yeah, be wrong. <laughs> yeah. You guys are the worst patients. We are the worst patients. Um, but I remember that same similar feeling of not really being worried about myself, but more about being worried about those around me. And also I was very career driven, just like you're very driven by your art. So I was mostly concerned about that, how the MS would impact working and how I perceived myself in the world as it relates to my job, my career, what I'm passionate about. And I imagine being an artist, that was one of the first things that hit you. Yeah, well, I wasn't, I, would, I was just doing a show for, when I got diagnosed, I was just in the middle of doing a show for Red Bull, the, the, the drink. And um, we had to fly to Miami. And at that time, I don't think I knew that the heat would affect me so much. I didn't have any real, there was just no Googling MS then. And um, so I flew to Miami and had to paint in the heat at this show and stand there and be presentable and you know and all this stuff because Red Bull was nice enough to pick me for um, a show they were having at Art Basel in um, Miami at the time and it was it was brutal. There were so many trips in and out of hospitals trying to get it right, trying different things out, seeing what works and what doesn't. And so I lost so many opportunities to work. Um, provide for my family, my kids. I was single mom, um, you know, and single mom with no um, child support of two kids and one with autism. So losing any work, as people know, is, uh, you know, life or death. And um, if I hadn't had the support of a huge support network of ruffians, for sure, and my family, but um, I wouldn't have, I would, we wouldn't have made it. We wouldn't have made it as far as we did. We wouldn't have made it to now. Um, it's one of the things that I think is so important about organizations that are bringing people together who have MS, Lyme, whatever, you know, cancer, groups of people are what pull you through these times. Um, Absolutely. And so that's what I needed. I needed that group. Definitely. And now you mentioned the first two years being quite the roller coaster, which, I definitely relate to, I feel like you're just figuring out how heat or stress or things affect your symptoms. And you're trying to create space for this new thing that isn't going anywhere and trying to adapt so that you can do the things you like to do 
So tell me a little bit about how you've made ad adaptations in order to continue making art. And do you feel like MS has had a negative impact, a positive impact, a little bit of both? Well, let me think. I would say that MS, I would say that MS has had a total equal parts negative impact and equal parts positive. It is, it is completely equal. I had already been painting, my, my whole career in art has been about politic. So I've been painting about people with disabilities, people um, who've been sexually trafficked, people who have, um, you know, the people I've, I've never painted. I have a book coming out in a couple months and I have a chapter called um, Tits and Flowers and I'll, I'll explain it, sorry. Um, there's this idea that um, women in general um, and people in the art world paint tits and flowers. And I never did it. And I think it's why my art career was rough up and coming. I was painting about the politics in Afghanistan. I was painting about what was happening in the, you know, the uh, Dominican Republic and the DRC and people who were suffering from Lyme or people who were marginalized. And so that shit just wasn't popular back then. It's all the rage now. Everybody's a keyboard social justice warrior, but and um, so I had a really hard time coming up. And so painting about multiple sclerosis and making adjustments to how I paint, I feel like I feel like I've been running the race already. Um, like I did a painting a couple of years ago about me with multiple sclerosis and it's two me's. One side is me, uh, the way I normally look and the other side is what I feel like. And it, my spine was kind of out and, and there's no blood or anything, but like, the spine is kind of out and, and sandbags in my feet and all these things. And I got, um, I got, uh, was the word, my MS takes my words all the time. Um, not notified, but when somebody like reports you, there's a word for reporting you on the internet. I just can't click it right now, but I've been reported over and over again for grotesque photography which is not what, it, it was a painting. It wasn't a photograph. I do paint high, highly realistically, but it was a painting of what it, feel, what it feels like for us. And it got taken down everywhere. Mm. And it's part of what I feel like is happening with MS right now. There's tons of these happy ads with young girls going, I just take an injection once a week and la la la. And it's like, what? That's, it's, you know, there's so many people suffering so badly and need to be seen or, or heard. Um, and these, these depictions of, of what, it, what it is not like, because it is not like that, I find, I find not offensive, but detrimental to um, us moving forward. Um, I just really wanted to say that. Those things yeah. really bug me. What adaptations have helped you navigate with MS? Tisons for painting are, so I started um, early on by tying my kids' shoelaces to my hands. They had these really cool sparkly pink shoelaces because they were like seven, six. And I was like, that's adorable. So I would tie them to my hands and I would stick paintbrushes in them so that it would hold it because I have ataxia and I have, I can't, so I can hold a paper. I can pick up my coffee cup in front of you right now. 
and I can hold a paintbrush, but I can't hold it for more than a few minutes. The muscles start to give out really fast and then they start to shake. And so since I paint things like, I paint these uh, hyper-realistic portraits, people's eyelashes, the folds in their skin, wrinkles, the things that I love. And um, those things are almost impossible to do with a single hair paintbrush when you have ataxia. So when the paint, when the shoelaces stopped working because uh, they would loosen a lot and they were rough, I started using bra straps. So the inside of a bra strap has this like, a lot of them have like a coating on the inside that's almost like a gel and it helps it stick, stay in place. And they're elastic, so they stay. And they're very snug, but without cutting off the circulation. So I started using those and I have a lot of paintings that uh, have those kind of showing in them, you know, self-portraits and things. The adjustments that we've had to make in our life are total. Um, my husband is a prop maker. So he is the best husband to have in this situation, I think. And he's got a cord hung, like a bar hung, uh, hung up right now that I'm talking to you on right now that holds the phone. Because I can hold it for a minute when I'm talking to somebody, but I can't hold it for a half an hour, hour podcast. Having air conditioning everywhere, having the wheelchair ready, whose name is Ellie, and Kane's ready, and a ramp already set up in my house even though I don't use a wheelchair every day, it's there permanently so that on days when I do need it, it's there. We don't have to rush to pull stuff out or feel like we're in a panic. Things are set up around the house to make my life as easy as possible, which in turn makes my family's life as easy as possible because they don't have to worry all the time that I have to hold my phone or I can't paint or I can't get around. So for me, setting up, even though we might not need everything yet, setting up for what, what you need, it's like hoarding food for the storm, right? Yeah. Or toilet paper for COVID. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that was a pivotal moment for me was when I stopped trying to be the girl on TV who's skipping around and being like, everything is fine. Right. And <clears throat> actually admitting that I had symptoms that did affect me every single day and do require adaptations. And once I finally got over that mindset of adaptations are a sign of weakness to adaptations are a way for me to take my life back and get yeah. out do those things. Right. So adaptations are a sign of strength because without them, you have to lean on someone else with them. You can be more independent and that's the strongest way you can be. A hundred percent. So what advice do you have for someone who may not be in that place yet and who may not want to use an assistive device or may not want to ask others for help? You know what helped me now that I think about it? You know what helped me is I realized I was robbing people of a gift. I was robbing my husband of his gifts. His gift to me was helping create these things or helping, or even if somebody can't create them, buy them, uh, hook them up. They feel good doing that. The person, people around you who you love, they love you. It's like equivalent to Christmas. They get to set up this thing and give it to you. And then they get to see you use it. That makes them feel good. It makes them feel important in your life. And if you have somebody that, that doesn't make feel good, then you might want to replace him before you start any other medication because it's no good. But yeah, you want to 
give them the gift of feeling good, feeling useful, because they feel useful helping you. I know that I feel useful helping somebody. It, those things are what make us human. And so that would be my advice. Give them the gift of helping you. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it also feels better to do something, even if you need to use an adaptation to do it, if you need to park in that handicap spot, if you need to use your cane, feels better to go out and do it than to stay home and avoid it. Oh, girl, I got that handicap placard the minute they let me have it. Even on days when I'm walking, I'm like, the handicap, handicap placard, I'm going to use it. Yeah. You got to save your energy. Got to save my energy. If I don't use it, then I might be tired later and I won't be able to do whatever else I wanted to do. Yeah. No, I, I take all the things. I'm like, just pour them on me. Exactly. And I think that's important too, is even if you feel a little, maybe a little overconfident, like you don't need the assistive device or don't need the adaptation. We learn from our mistakes and we learn from the days where we push too hard and we don't use the things we should use and then we pay for it. Right. And then you pay for it later. And then you, and then you have everybody around you. That's the worst when you have people around you going, I told you to use your cane. I told you, yeah, I don't want to hear any of that. I'll just use it. So I don't have to hear. I told you so. So that's the worst. That is the worst. (laughs) Now, For those of uh, our listeners who haven't already seen it or heard about it, your documentary is called The Art of Rebellion. And I think you told us a little bit about the rebellious side, but you've also told me in the past that you feel, or you absolutely refuse to feel ashamed about your diagnosis. And you even said that you try to make having a disability as fun as possible. Yeah. I mean, why, why would I feel... I'm not speaking for anybody else, but why would I, me, Lydia, Emily, feel ashamed about anything? There's, there's two ways that I look at it. One, it just adds to my greatness. I would like to say that this, all the, everything that happens to me just adds to my greatness. And that's what makes, and that's me being funny. That's just funny. Like it's so completely preposterous that I would have cancer and MS. So, um, I don't, I don't feel any shame. There's the shame I would feel would be, I also find my MS to be a gift in a way that if you look at, so my daughter's in physics and, and everybody in the house is into statistics and physics. So if you look at your group of people, right? So let's say I have a group of uh, 10 really close friends, really close friends, right? And we have them over barbecues or whatever. They're the people in your little orbit, right? Statistically, a percentage of them are going to get an autoimmune disease statistically a percentage of them are going to get cancer, uh, suffer, uh, you know, some sort of uh, aggressive attack, you know, something like that. So I, I can say I've taken that from my 10. I've taken the cancer. I've taken the MS. I've lowered the chances statistically of one of them getting it. And so that makes me feel really good. I, I, I'm so happy because I love them. And I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. So that's one way of looking at it. You know, that's one way that helps me feel like, I mean, I don't believe there's any meant to be, but in, cause I don't believe in mystic stuff, but for statistics, for my math brain, it was meant to be that one of us was going to get it. So let it be me. I can handle it and let them be able to walk and let them be able to have, you know, the things that I can't have. Cause I get to have other things and I feel no shame 
and I feel no embarrassment. Um, and absorbing my strength and feeling proud and standing up with it takes it away from other people to maybe feel pity for me. You know, when I stand up tall, I'm like, yeah, I've got MS. So like, you know, everybody's got something. This is mine. I wear it with a badge and these are the accommodations I've made for it. And this is how I choose to live my life, knowing what it, what is happening, knowing what it's going to be. And you kind of rob anybody from feeling pity. Yeah. I have found the same thing. I learned that very early on the way I present my MS to the world is the way I receive responses back. So if I am just like you are, I have MS, it affects me. I have to make changes to my life because of it. Right. Now look at all the cool things I've done. Yeah. Now look, look at all the things I'm trying to do and all the cool things I've done could be reading. You know, not everybody's an artist or a mathematician or, you know, not everybody's yeah. a researcher. So when I say like, I'm still doing things, it, it doesn't, those things don't have to be climbing a mountain. Those things could just be reading, knitting. The things I see people doing with MS, the artists I see putting up art who are blind. I mean, I'm only blind in one eye from MS, but who are totally blind from MS and they're drawing still, you know, or writing like being prolific isn't about your accomplishment. You don't, I don't have to paint a thousand paintings about MS. I don't need to be prolific to be accomplished. I could just do one thing and that one thing is fine. And having pride in that one thing is all that matters. We, I just recently judged an art contest for people with MS all over the world. It was called, I don't know, World MS Day, something. Um, so it was an art contest for people who had MS all over the planet. And we took um, entries from the Middle East, from South America, from, and, and the entries were completely different. So you have people who obviously had gone to art school of some kind or had some inherent natural talent. And then you had people who could just barely, you know, use crayons and, and admit, turned it in on a napkin from a, from a restaurant their stories are different and what they're able to do with their MS and how it affects them is different. What they're able to accomplish is different, but it, it was about what they were trying to say, what they were trying to relay made everything about the piece of art possible. And people won and, and got into the finals that had no training. They were just able to find a way to express themselves you know, and that's, that's really what it's all about. It's not about whether or not you end up in a magazine. A hundred percent. I think it's about recognizing that MS or any challenge changes fundamentally who we are, whether we like to admit that or not. And absolutely. I mean, look at, I was, I was jumping around on freeways 15 years ago. You know, my life is completely different, completely different. And I thought I had all the time in the world and all the, all the energy in the world. And I don't. Now I paint maybe one painting a year, a year. And that's fine. That's who I am. And that's, and people wait for it. And sometimes I feel like what I am able to do, I'm now all that much more proud of. I mean, I did, yeah. I, I was more prolific before MS, but now the things that I pour my energy and my intention into are things that I am 
much more exponentially proud of. Because of all the effort it took and the concentration and Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your art? Art, doing art for me as somebody with a disability, doing art, there's a catharsis to it that forces you to meditate even if you don't meditate. Like I don't meditate. I don't sit down and do any of that stuff. But when you're focusing that hard on something, there is a meditation to it. And the fact that you are taking the time to care for yourself, to do it, is just worth everything. I don't even see my murals. One time I painted a mural in a skid row in Los Angeles. It was a tough neighborhood, let me tell you. And we had a lot of tough moments. Painted the mural, it's two stories, took some pictures, left, um, got out. Um, and it, it's, it's not mine anymore. It doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to that neighborhood. And I was, tr- there's no better point made. I drove by it once and I was like, hey, it's still writing. Uh, writing, by the way, is a street art terminology for it's still up. It hasn't been graffitied on. It hasn't, it's, you know, still writing. So it was a year later, it was still writing. Although Skid Row, you don't get a lot of people going and covering people's stuff because it's, it's dangerous. So I drove by and I was like, oh, look at that, it's still writing. And this guy, I went to take a picture with my phone um, and this guy ran up to the car and he's like, you want to take a picture of that? $5. And I was like, oh, well, he's like, that's my mural. This is, this is my block. That's my mural. This is our neighborhood. You have, and I was like, you are absolutely right. You're out, here's $5. I won't, I won't take any pictures. I'm sorry. And I left. And that, but that's it. Like he didn't know I painted it. It's not mine. So it, it's nothing to be like intimidated by because doesn't belong to me the minute I walk away from it sometimes they'll even go and cover your name up and that's fine there's no like I did it for the neighborhood I left it for the neighborhood there is no pride you get to take with it other than one you keep to yourself mm-hmm. so um when people come up to me and they say oh I just do this little knitting or I just I made a little one woman was making cards so cool it was in Boston and she had a little stamp set and she's just stamping cards and then writing nice things in them. She's like, they're just cards. I'm like, this is awesome. And you had to buy the things to make it. And you had to plan it out. I know how much planning when it's not just a little card. It's your effort. It's your art. And I'll treasure it. And I still have it. We're going to share your website. Do you want to share the book that's coming out soon? Um, yeah. The Art of Hope. And um, it's a takes from the name of the documentary a little bit. Um, the Art of Rebellion, but Art of Hope is about. It has less art than it does words. It's not like an art coffee table book. Um, it's about me, and some parts of my life are in it. Some parts are not. It's my first book, and it's also about how to get along in the healthcare system in the United States when you don't have insurance. Um, it's about how drugs are priced. It's about the art world, which is rubbish. It's about MS and, um, and love and still finding hope. And it's about, it's about getting past our differences, I hope. I wrote a passage in the book about Sometimes you can only agree on gardening. And sometimes for me, you can only agree on art and the work ethic that comes with those long hours of standing in the street, painting, 
who we are at our core is bigger than the shirt we the t-shirt we wear with the logo on it you know yeah i hope that's a good explanation and being united for a purpose for a purpose helps you overcome almost anything i think and having the respect of my fellow man that even if i completely disagree with every fundamentally with everything they say and they with me we can still love each other absolutely and it's not like ms is very nice to us but we find a way to get along with it i know lydia emily thank you so much for sharing your story your experiences and approach to ms with us today we're so happy that you joined us Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here and I can't wait to come up and take you guys spray painting. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Can Do MS podcast. If you'd like to check out Lydia Emily's artwork, you'll find a link to her website in the description of this podcast episode. We'd like to thank Biogen and all our generous sponsors for their support of the Can Do MS podcast. Until next time, be well and have a great day.